morning to you. It's quite amazing how the Lord works, I think, because what I'm going to say this morning, there's already been three, I think, hints in words that have been spoken or said during this morning about what we're going to look at this morning. And also, I did, if you want to hear it, I did actually cut out this article that was alluded to about the bishop wanting the Koran read at coronations. This was in the Times, actually, if you'll bear with me. Uh, In fact, I think I have to take these glasses off to read it. It says, this was yesterday's paper, coronations of British monarchs should include readings taken from the Koran, a former bishop of Oxford has said, former bishop of Oxford. Lord Harris of Pentagarth or something said that religious composition had changed so much that Islamic scripture should be included for hospitality. The relationship of the Church of England to the state has changed, is changing, and could change further, he said, in the House of Lords. He pointed to a service at Bristol Cathedral where passages from the Koran were read after a request from the city's high sheriff, a devout Muslim. Quote again, It was a brilliant creative act of accommodation that made the Muslim high sheriff feel... warmly embraced but did not alienate the core congregation, strange, isn't it, or indeed Muslims or Christians by a blurring of the boundaries. He quoted the Queen, who in 2012 said that the church had, quote, a duty to protect um, the free practice of all faiths. That's our protector of the faith. Douglas Murray, a commentator on religious affairs, disagreed. Hooray, someone disagrees. If you're going to have the Quran read, then you're going to have to have readings from Hindu scriptures, from Buddhist scriptures, Sikh scriptures, atheists, dot, 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 must be represented by some readings in Westminster Abbey as well, he told BBC Radio 4's Today. The reason I cut that out was because we're looking at John's letter, uh, first letter, and of course he talks about Gnostic beliefs, and false teachers. This is, I think, a hint of what we're facing today, certainly from ex-members of the Church of England, if not current members of the Church of England. Okay, enough of that for the time being. Today we're going to be looking at the first letter of John and chapter 3. One of the things that John speaks of that you'll see later is Cain. That crops up in this passage. The other thing we've just sung about seeing Jesus face to face John speaks about seeing Jesus face to face. Can anyone remember what else it says? We shall be like him as he is. What an amazing statement, isn't it? We shall be like him as he is. Anyway, without further ado, so let's just remind ourselves of the context in which the letter was written. As I said, Gnostic beliefs and false teaching were creeping into the church. And John wrote his letter to warn believers not to be deceived. He told his readers how to recognise these false doctrines and set out simple tests for the readers to apply to their own lives. And if they passed these tests, it would assure them that they were abiding in Jesus, that they were having true fellowship with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and with each other, that they would be living in obedience to Jesus' commands, loving their brothers and sisters in truth and sincerity. The false teaching 
and the mistaken beliefs of the Gnostics centred on, firstly, the failure to recognise Jesus as both fully human and fully God, and secondly, it was their attitude to sin. The Gnostics believed that the spirit was good and the flesh was evil, and whatever sins were committed in the body or in the flesh were irrelevant and unimportant and had no impact on their spiritual lives. So that's the background of um, the, the letter. And um, as we continue in chapter 3, John gives further assurance to the believers concerning the benefits of a life in Christ and gives further tests for ascertaining whether they are being obedient. Broadly, verses 1 to 9 help them to know whether they are doing what is right. And verses 10 to 24 deal with loving each other, loving one another. As we read through chapter 3, let us imagine that this letter was written to us, that John was writing to us, as indeed he is, isn't he? So let's look at 1 John chapter 3. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Got quite a few scripture quotes, so you might like to keep a finger in 1 John 3. We'll be going backwards and forwards looking at that. Listen carefully and see if you can take in as much as this. There is so much in this. I didn't realise how much is in this passage and it's brought it home to me today just in our worship. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Because he had laid down, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. He gave us, as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now there's an awful lot in those first two verses. Um, three things which stood out to me, which I allocated the word, um, or words beginning with the letter P. Three words are, you might like to look at these first two verses and see what I mean. Privilege, pain and promise. They're mind-blowing, these verses, absolutely mind-blowing. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Notice the exclamation mark. And I don't know if you can feel, but when I read that, I felt the wonder that pulsated through John's heart and was pulsating through mine today as we sang, um, as he wrote those words, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're children of God. This is our privilege that we should be called children of God. Who is this God? Only the creator of the universe. Only the sustainer of the universe. We are his children. It goes on, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. This is our pain. Or we could use another word, also beginning with a P, persecution. For this is what we should expect. And we'll say a bit more about that later on. John goes on, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. So not just called children of God. He confirms this wonderful truth and privilege. We are children of God. So we've got a privilege and a pain. Now we move on to the promise. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the promise, that we shall be like him. And this doesn't mean that we will look like Jesus, of course, but the, that we will have the nature of Jesus. Another mind-blowing statement. Loving and kind and everything else that Jesus is, that we will actually be like that. Okay, so let's go through this a bit more. Um, we are children of God. John writes in his Gospel, you might like to look this up, about those who accept Jesus. John 1, 12 and 13 we're going to look at. Children of God. John 1, verses 12 and 13. Keep your finger in the first letter because we will be going back to that. So he says, but as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, of course, we were born of blood and the will of, man, of the flesh and the will of man. But John records the words of Jesus to Nicodemus about being born again in the spirit. You know the story. 
Nicodemus came to Jesus at night seeking to know more about him. If you just flick over a couple of pages, we look at John 3, verses 3 to 7. John answered and said to him, that's said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And Paul in his writing to the Romans also speaks to us about the wonder of being children of God. In fact, Paul goes further, saying that we're children and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And he too mentions the pain as well as the privilege. Look out for this um, carefully. Let's turn to Romans 8, verses 12 to 17. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. These are amazing words, aren't they? So Romans 8, 12 to 17. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So that's the privilege, children of God, suffering with Jesus, as Paul writes, brings us neatly back to the pain. 1 John 3 again, verse 1 says, Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Earlier on I said that instead of the word pain, we could use the word persecution. For this is what we should expect. And that statement's based on the words of Jesus from John 15:20. You don't need to turn to it, but I'll read it out. It says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now we know, of course, that Jesus was persecuted, and therefore I say we should expect the same kind of treatment from the world. I said pain originally. There are other types of pain, of course. Another type of pain that Jesus himself felt was rejection at the time of the, the crucifixion, or just before the crucifixion, of course. We may not go through rejection like that, but an example that sprang to mind, we could be ignored or isolated in, say, a workplace environment when people know that we are Christians and our lifestyles challenge their own values and outlook on life. And that sort of situation reminded me of the heroes of faith that are spoken about in Hebrews 11. Again, I don't think you need to turn to this, but I'll just read out a couple of quotes. It says that they remained strong in their faith and patiently endured hardships, confessing that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's Hebrews 11.13. And they did not desire to return to their homeland, 
but desired a better, that is, a heavenly country. So the question is, do we share that same heavenly hope? Right, as we look closer at the promise of being like Jesus, think about some of his characteristics. Um, Love, kindliness, gentleness, holy, all these characteristics. Um, But we probably need to link this with verse 3. So if you just, we're in back in the letter now, 1, chap, 1 John 3, um, look at verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him, that's Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. So we can't just be like Jesus. Um, we have to do something. The thought here is that because um, we will be like him one day in the future, we should have a desire to become like him now. And this is the journey, if you like, of our sanctification. Um, Turn to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And Tom spoke about the um, the power, the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, didn't he? Not the dynamite, but the enabling power. This transformation and renewing of our minds comes to us through the power of the Holy Spirit as we study and meditate on God's word. And by focusing on Jesus, the Holy Spirit transforms the believer more and more into his image. As we grow in our knowledge of Jesus, the more he is revealed in our lives. Peter writes in his second letter, you might like to turn to this one, another brilliant scripture, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Actually, you could write sermons on these individual verses, couldn't you really? Well, you could if you were a better speaker than me, anyway. (laughs) So 2 Peter 1, verses 2 to 4, and see what he says. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which you have been given, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. It's just mind blowing, isn't it? So if we surrender ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit, if we desire to be like Jesus now, surrender our wills to God, then we can be partakers of the divine nature. Okay, well let's hope we all have that desire to be more like Jesus now, not wait for things to happen. Let's move on. That's the end of the three P's, the letter P's. We're on now to verses 4 to 9, which talks about sin, really. And um, we need to keep in mind here Uh, the Gnostic attitude to sin in the flesh, 
which they thought of, as I said, as inconsequential. They thought it didn't matter to their lives, but of course it did. The first thing we need to understand in this section is the meaning of the Greek word used for commits in verse 4. I've written it down, but I won't even try to pronounce it. It's spelled P-O-I-E-O, if you want to work that out. That's the Greek word for commits. It conveys the meaning of a continuous habit as opposed to a momentary occasional lapse. And we see that in some of the later verses as well. Turn to 1 John 1, let's look at verses 8 to 10. Because he's saying here really that we can't sin, but in these verses he says that we do sin. So we want to just clear up this um, contention between the two passages. 1 John 1, 8 to 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So in other words, John's saying that we do still sin, but in this passage in chapter 3, if we sin habitually, this will be lawlessness. It conveys a sense of rebellion against God. So we've got the power through the Holy Spirit to stop sinning, basically. It's all down to the Holy Spirit working in our lives, isn't it? So we have to consciously be aware that we're not sinning habitually. Otherwise, John says later on, and you'll, you'll see that, that he wonders how people can be born again if they continue to sin. Anyway, uh, moving on, verse 5, back to um, chapter 3 this is, John reminds the believers that Jesus died to take away their sins and to sanctify them. And he says Jesus himself was sinless. And verse 6 shows us the kind of lifestyle required of those who will abide in him. Again, the idea is that believers will not be perfectionists, they will not be perfectionists, but they will also not be habitual, constant sinners. So they can have, if you like, lapses, but make sure you don't let something small gather speed, you know, like a snowball rolling down a hill. We've got to keep our account, I think Hillary says this, keep our account short with God. Make sure we do, as John says in um, chapter 1, confess our sins to God and ask for forgiveness, seek repentance. If somebody does behave in that manner, as I said, John effectively says that they can't be true believers. Now in verse 7, John begins with a warning to the believers not to be deceived by the false teachers who were trying to pervert the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And he goes on to contrast the different and opposing lifestyles of the true believers and the false teachers. Since Jesus died on the cross to destroy the works of the devil and transform sinners, those truly born again have replaced the habit of sin with the habit of righteous living. Turn with me again to Romans chapter 6 this time. See what Paul says about this. Romans 6, we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. We always have a part to play in trying to be good. We're not trying to earn our salvation, though. We're trying to work out our salvation, our sanctification. So 13 and 14 of chapter 6. 
And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. By contrast, he who sins, verse 8, that is, habitually practices sin, is of the devil. And we must remember that although the devil has been defeated, he is still operating, and only in Christ will we prevail. Now, verse 9, John expands the reason why Christians cannot habitually practice sin. When we believe and trust in Jesus, God makes us a new creation. I'm sure you all know the verse here, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we've been born again into God's family with a new nature, and the Holy Spirit prompts us to exhibit the habitual character of righteousness. John says that God's seed remains in us, which is a picture of the divine element that um, we read about earlier, the divine element involved in being born again. And Peter says again, I'll just read this one. Uh, this is from 1 Peter 1.23. He says, we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The idea of the seed remaining in us conveys the permanence of a new birth which cannot be reversed and thus the true believer cannot habitually sin. I think that's the argument. This is uh, perhaps what makes John's assessment of false, false teachers as plain as day. As I said, if they continue to sin habitually, then they cannot have been born again. That's his reasoning. Okay, so that's the subject of sin dealt with very briefly. Let's look at verses 10 to 24 now. This, these verses talk mainly about loving our brothers. Verse 10 is like a bridge between the two main subjects here. John effectively says there are only two kinds of children in the world. There are children of God who practice righteousness and there are children of Satan who live in sin. He then goes further and says, whoever does not love his brother is not of God. Verse 11 then implies that if we love one another as Jesus commanded, and this is the central theme of Christianity, of course, since the beginning of the proclamation of the good news, then this means that we are truly born again of God. These are the tests that um, I spoke about, further tests that we can apply to our lives. And verse 12, which mentions Cain, is a bit like a parenthesis or brackets in this passage, but gives us useful insight. It says that Cain did not become a child of the devil by murdering his brother. He was already a child of the devil. And Tom said this, his actions were evil and led him to murder his brother, whom he saw as righteous. So because his brother was righteous... This upset Cain, basically, and led to this murder. And righteousness draws hatred from the devil and hatred from the children of the devil. And we will always see these opposites in life. Darkness versus light. Immorality versus morality. Hatred versus love. And greed versus sacrifice. Verses 13 and 14 
reiterate this division between the world and the kingdom of God. Believers are hated by the world because we have passed from death to life, from the world to the kingdom of God. We love our brothers. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Verse 15, John goes further in saying that whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now John was possibly thinking of Cain here. As far as Cain was concerned, hate was the seed that led him to murder Abel. But John could have also been alluding to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. It says in um, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. So hatred is spiritually the same as murder in the eyes of God. A person whose life is characterized by hate cannot have been born again. He can't have eternal life abiding in him. Now in verse 16 we have what I've called an ultimate challenge. As Jesus laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We are called to the same standard of love for one another as Jesus had for us. Just think about that. How do you stand? How do I stand? This is a great challenge to me. Could we really give our lives for our brothers? I suppose it depends on the circumstances, doesn't it? Think about that, though, before we move on to verse 17, which is a bit like a cop-out. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I think, putting it mildly, John says that you don't have to suffer the supreme sacrifice. You can exhibit this love in lesser ways. That's helping our brothers in need. I'll be first in the queue there, but I'm not so sure about giving up my life. That's a real challenge, isn't it? Verse 18 tells us not to speak about our love, but to exhibit it by our deeds. Faith without deeds and all of that. Do you remember that from James? Verse 19, when we know the driving force of our lives is love, for the sake of Christ, of course, then we are assured of our salvation. Verse 20, even if our heart condemns us, that is, we may from time to time have doubts, obviously. Um, We can go through low patches as well as high patches. But we can be sure that God really knows our hearts. In verse 21, when our lives do manifest love in deeds and action, we can be confident in the presence of God. Verses 22 to 24 uh, repeat three themes of John's letter, which are basically believing, loving and obeying. In verse 22, our prayers are not answered as a reward for obedience to his commands, but when we are obedient to do those things that are pleasing in his sight then our wills are aligned with his. We will pray accordingly and our prayers will be answered. Now recalling again the Gnostic beliefs in the context of verse 23, believing in Jesus means believing in the gospel about Jesus, that he is God's son. That was a sticking point for the Gnostics, remember? They didn't believe that he was fully God and fully man. That he's God's son, he came to save humankind from their sins, and that by believing in him, we can have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
when we believe that, the only true expression of our faith is to love Jesus and to obey him. Verse 24 tells us that when we keep God's commands, we abide in him and he abides in us. And we have this assurance because his spirit indwells us and empowers us to manifest God's presence in our lives by our love and our conduct. So in conclusion, just a few thoughts. These are for me and probably for everybody here. Some important issues we may wish to consider. Do we really believe that we are children of God? Have we appropriated this fantastic privilege? Do we behave as if we are children of God? We spoke about this time of the year and all of the the Black Friday. Do we consider ourselves as strangers and pilgrims on earth or are we tied up with material things and wanted to get our bargains from the shops? Are we fearful of suffering for Jesus, pain and persecution I mentioned? Or do we have now the desire to be more like Jesus? Can we make that promise a reality in our lives? Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for these amazing privileges and promises that we see in your word. And we do thank you, Lord, um, for your Holy Spirit. Lord, without you dwelling in us, we couldn't do any of this, Lord. We've got no chance at all. But we do thank you that you have uh, not not only given us new birth and made us a new creation, but you've left your spirit with us to empower us, to lead our lives the way you want us to. Help us, Lord. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word, Lord. We pray that that power may be exhibited in our lives, that we may reveal you to others. Help us, Lord, as we think more on reaching out to others. Help us to lead our lives in the way you want us to. Help us to be your witnesses here on earth. We do thank you for your spirit, Lord. Thank you that... um, You are with us. We pray, Lord, that we may manifest you to the world around us. For your glory we ask it. Amen.